We have a God that answers prayer, doesn't he? Just uh, this last week, I was chatting with a couple people from the congregation that our leadership had anointed with oil and prayed for for healing, and God's just done dramatic things in their life and answered prayer and brought healing in their life, especially in the one case, very serious issues. And we thank him for that, and we can trust him for new things. And so I'm going to just invite you. I know many of you have been praying. Um, we have some, some staff changeover that's coming up. We have one of our staff leaving and one heading on maternity leave soon. And so we've been working on that. And we have hired a, a part-time administrator that'll be starting a week from tomorrow. Her name is Purdy. And uh, we are in the final stages of hiring a youth and young adults pastor. And so we're not quite there yet, but we're getting close. And I encourage you to be praying with us for our search team and for myself as this decision is made. And we still need to hire someone for a mat leave, just a part-time mat leave for children. And so we're just encouraging you to pray with us as we do that and seek God's people for these roles. I'd like to pray with you as we get ready to look into God's word. Let's pray. Father, it's absolutely true that we can trust you in every part of life. You care about it even more than we do because you're intimately involved. You created the situation, the people involved, and we know that you're leading. We know that you're leading and that this is your church. And so we invite you in these areas that I've mentioned to be at work. And may we, you know, we ask all kinds of questions in those processes, but really there's only one that matters. And that's this, God, what would you have us do? So we invite you to be very clear and forthright and bring clarity in these situations, not only for us, but for the people that we're speaking with. And Father, as we look into your word now, how we pray that you'll be honored, that you'll be exalted in all that we talk about from scripture. We thank you for it. It's such a, uh, it's, it's true and it's intensely practical. And so as we consider it now, we pray you'd speak into our hearts as only you can. Debbie and I have uh, two kids, Aaron and Sean, and they're, they've been with us for like three decades now, and I'm not so sure I'm getting a lot out of it. From the beginning, the flow of resources has been pretty much one way. Like even the delivery process was really hard. Debbie played a key role, but my role, I was coaching and, and grinding it out, and it was just exhausting. After birth for the two of them, we just invested a ton of time and emotion and energy and resources in their development. And, and from my experience, they just took and took and took diapers, housing, food, clothes, lessons, you name it. And of course, they're gone now, they're grown up, and the flow of resources has never really significantly turned around. I've noticed this. They're generous in their own way and based on their capacity. And so once in a while, we get a card and a present or a Zoom call or a visit. But bottom line, the financial return on investment has been incredibly low. 
And, you know, I've been around and, and I've been married now since 1985, and I'm not so sure I'm getting the biggest piece of that pie either. There's times, believe it or not, when I've emptied the dishwasher for no reason at all, and I only got one thank you. I didn't even get Debbie calling my mom and saying, you'd never believe what your son just did. He's an incredible guy. Now, I'm pretty sure a number of you are sitting on the edge of your seat wanting to give me a really good shake, probably a few slaps as well. Scott, you have missed the way that family life is supposed to be. You've missed out completely on the way it works. Because family life, Scott, it's always going to frustrate you if you approach it as a consumer. What's in it for me? God, family is something you, you give yourself to. And it's not about me. It's about we. Not about me. It's about we. And we're doing this series right now called The, the We Factor. And it's all around the idea of community, which so many of us are just aching for. And we're discovering it's in the giving that the gift comes. It comes when you're not looking for it. And it sort of sneaks up on you. And, and this kid, you know, when they're little, they're just taking and taking and taking. And all of a sudden, that baby smiles at you out of the blue. And it makes all the difference. Or that gift you give your dad makes him cry. Or you're at a party and you look across the room at the woman that you love with all your heart that you've given your life to, and you say to her, you look exactly the same today as the day I married you 37 years ago, and then you wait patiently for her to say the same thing to you, and she doesn't because she loves you and she loves the truth. It's in the giving that the gift comes. And it's not about me. It's about we. It's in the giving that the gift comes. Today I want to ask you, are you using your gift with we in mind? And as I said, we just see evidence of this everywhere, of people aching for community because of the circumstances of the last couple of years. And rightly so. And one of the ways you're going to be able to enter into this thing that you're, and maybe it's hard to even put into words, sort of craving is when you understand the concept, it's not me, it is we. And are you using your gift? If you have your Bible or your device, I'm going to invite you to swipe with me to 1 Corinthians 12, well-known passage I'm just going to read one verse right now. I'm going to be reading a number of verses from that passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And, and it's found about a third of the way into the Newer Testament, Acts and Romans. Then you'll come to the book of 1 Corinthians. And it's one of two letters in the scriptures that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And this was a church that was kind of messed up. If you read the opening chapters of 1 Corinthians, they were, they were quite messed up. And so he's teaching them, and he's teaching us 
about using the gift that God has put in your life or gifts that God's put in your life. And so he says one day, he's writing this letter to them, to us, and he says in verse one, now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. And he's going to say in this chapter, we're going to discover together that if you're part of the Jesus family, if you're on the journey with Jesus and you've given your life to him, you have at least one spiritual gift. In fact, you may have multiple spiritual gifts that the spirit of God has given you. It's not just something you can say, I'm going to do this. He decides who gets what gift. It's very clear in this and other passages. And the Spirit of God has given you a gift, and the invitation in this passage is to identify that gift or gifts, to uh, cherish those gifts, and very importantly, to use those gifts, to use them. And this is mission critical when we're thinking about community, when we're thinking about uh, these ideas I've talked about, mission critical for your destiny and for the flourishing of God's people and for the world. Not just looking inwardly at us here as a church, but out in the world as well. And to go to your grave without having used your gift is a travesty. It's an incredible waste. And being part of the family of God, part of community, this thing that we, you know, it's like when you eat a lot of salt and vinegar chips and you're just thirsty. This thing that you're thirsty for, being part of community, means I'm gonna give to the community. I'm gonna serve the community based on who God created me to be. And when you serve that way, there is just incredible blessings that come back in return as you serve as God has created you. And so if you follow Jesus, if you're a Jesus follower, if you've given your life to him and he's forgiven your sins and you've surrendered the direction of your life to him, God doesn't just call you to go to church. And that's absolutely clear in scripture. Some people try to, they labor under this false illusion that they can just ignore the church despite its faults. This is not biblical at all, all through the old and new. This is God's plan A for every biblical believer. But he's saying, don't just go to church. God calls you to serve the family, to serve internally in the family, but also out in the uh, local community as well, and to build community and to be part of the we factor. And so in some ways, in, in, in almost a bit of a rudimentary way, I'm talking to people that may not understand spiritual gifts. I'm assuming that, not about all of you, obviously, but some of you, or perhaps don't understand the nature of the church. And if you don't understand, or you've chosen not to use your gift, that would be you. Greatness, Scripture clearly teaches, is found in servanthood. Servanthood to Jesus and to the family. And so oftentimes, Paul in writing, he would, make, he would use this kind of expression. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of. And so he says this in verse one. I don't want you to be ignorant of. And so I'm gonna make a series of statements from scripture that 
kind of line up or finish that first part of the sentence. I don't want you to be ignorant of. And so he begins by saying, I don't want you to be ignorant of what God, how God has created you to serve, not to be served, but to serve. In fact, very well-known verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 Verse 8 and 9 talks about how we come into relationship with God based, there's nothing we can do to earn it or deserve it or warrant it. It's based exclusively on the actions of Christ for us on the cross. But then subsequent to that, after we come into relationship with Jesus, it says we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has all prepared and ready for us to do. You were made, if you're part of the family of Jesus, to do good works that God has called you to. And it's not about accumulating good things. You know, we're often encouraged, and there was even a movie like 10 years ago, something like that, to have a bucket list. And we often are told, you know, why don't you put on your bucket list like things like expensive trips or you know, exotic ex- adventures, things like that. And you're supposed to do this list of things before you quote unquote kick the bucket. But it's interesting if you ex- study that expression, kick the bucket, in the Oxford English Dictionary, they say it's most likely, not sure, but it's most likely that this, the image of kicking the bucket is if you picture a solid beam on which is hung a hook with a pig dangling on the hook. And as the pig is being slaughtered, there'd be like a slop bucket down at the base to collect the stuff that you don't want to use anymore. And as the pig is slaughtered and it's in its death throes, sometimes it would thrash around and kick the bucket. You know, the good news in all that is you are not a pig. You are a follower of Jesus. And as such, you will not be a bucket kicker. Jesus said in John chapter 8, 53, whoever obeys my word will not taste death. Now, what that means is that physical death that every human being will experience unless Jesus comes back first. Physical death, which every human being will experience, is not the end for a Jesus follower. In fact, it's the starting of a glorious beginning where you will spend eternity reigning and worshiping and serving with him. And so the real list is not the trips or the exotic experiences or whatever, and it's okay to enjoy trips and those kinds of things. That's not what I'm saying. But the real, they don't begin to make the real list. The real list is the service you offer and the lives that are changed for eternity as you work for God, and especially in Jesus' name, as you serve for him. Paul says, don't be ignorant that God has called you to serve. You could turn over, you could keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 12, and if you want to turn over to 1 Peter, which is most of the way through the New Testament, it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, listen to this. Peter is writing, and he says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, don't talk about that a ton, probably should talk about it more. When you are a follower of Christ, 
when you have surrendered your life to him and you're in relationship with God because of who you are in Christ and only because of that, you are part of a royal priesthood as a chosen person, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into the wonderful light. I don't know what you think about when you think about a priest, but in the ancient world, a priest was not really like a clergyman like I am in our world today. Um, Back in that era, in that part of the world in particular, great leaders of state, even in Rome and so forth, were considered priests as well as political leaders. And so the Caesars were considered political leaders or emperors, but they were also considered priests, and they would be worshipped as small g gods as well. In Israel, it was a little different. In Israel, they had a distinct two-track system in which all of the masses of people, the regular people, were part of the 12 tribes of Israel. But then there was another tribe, the the priest tribe or the priest track, the Levites. And there were holy places that only the priests could go. There were prayers that only the Levites, priests, could pray. There were sacrifices that only the priests could make. There were clothes, they had special clothes that only a priest could wear. There was forgiveness that only a priest could pronounce. And then along comes Jesus. All the Older Testament points to Jesus. And Jesus, the Messiah, the promised Messiah comes and he changes everything. We're told in scripture that he is the sacrifice, the last and once for all sacrifice for all. And he comes and gives himself as that sacrifice for our sin, for our forgiveness, for the capacity for us to have relationship with God. And this is what the priests of the Older Testament had been pointing the people to all along. There's a day coming when the Lamb of God will come and give his life for the many. And everyone in the Older Testament that had by faith given their life to God would be saved based on what Jesus was going to do. And everyone in the Newer Testament is saved by faith based on what Jesus has done. And this is what the priest pointed them to all along. And so some people might hear this and look at this and assume, well, that would mean that when Christ came and did his work, that this would be the end of the priesthood. And actually, it's exactly the opposite. It meant everyone in the community of Jesus. And if you claim to be a follower of Christ, as I've described today, that means you are a priest. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, uh, coined the phrase and the doctrine, the priesthood of all believers, based on Scripture. And it says this in two places in that First Peter passage. In verse 5, it says this, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then verse 9 as well, which I won't, which I read just a couple of minutes ago, said basically the same thing. Everyone is called, if they're a follower of Jesus, into this priesthood. 
to be a minister. And if you're a follower of Jesus and the Spirit lives in you, you have been given a spiritual gift or gifts that he expects you to use for the we, for the community. Another thing Paul said, don't be ignorant of, is he's that he has gifted you to serve. And if you continue, move back to that 1 Corinthians 12 passage, he says, and this is why, in verse 7, now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given. Again, that's that idea that the Spirit of God gives these gifts, and these are given for the common good, for community, for the we. And so the church was meant, as you're studying the New Testament church, the church was meant and intended by God to be led by people with the spiritual gift of leadership. We see this in Romans chapter 12. The church is meant to be shepherded by people who have the spiritual gift of shepherding, to be taught by people who have the spiritual gift of teaching, to be hosted by people who have the spiritual gift of hospitality. And so it's not that you can't be hospitable if you don't have that gift, but there are people clearly gifted by God in that particular area. And just like the idea of the church that I referenced earlier, there is no plan B in the economy of God. God's plan is for the church to be organized around and run by spirit-given gifts. And when we don't do this, we are defying the Holy Spirit and defying Scripture. So when you read the story of the early church, they ran things in light of Scripture and in a, a framework designed around, in Ephesians 4, the five-fold ministry, and in 1 Corinthians 12, these spiritual gifts, and in the book of Romans chapter 12, the gifts listed there, and God was incredibly at work. Now, if you read church history, over time, the church has begun to morph back and forth at times in history, sometimes back into the two-track system of the Old Testament. And for example, like when I was born, uh, I went to church all of my life. I didn't come to Christ until I was almost 11 years old. But when I was born, especially in that era, this was very much the case, the two-track system. And people, and I think we're moving away from that, but perhaps not as radically as we should, people would come together when I was born and in those years, and they would form a church, and they would go out and they would hire a quote-unquote minister to do, or a pastor to do the ministry. And this minister was called on to study the Bible and to preach and to visit the shut-ins and to pray for the sick and to lead the board and to arrange the service and to shepherd the flock and to print the bulletin and to straighten the chairs and to recruit the volunteers and to marry, bury, and baptize, to comfort, to counsel, to be a master of theology, of exegesis, of homiletics, of leadership, of administration, to be able to read Greek and Hebrew and in some cases Latin to know how to do finances, management, worship arts, and of course, recruit for the nursery. And I've seen job descriptions like that in my past. And they would hire someone to do this. A job description that the Apostle Paul could not fulfill, 
I'm not so sure Jesus could. I suppose he probably could, but he definitely would not because he understands how it's supposed to work. And then what would everyone else do with this mindset? They would step back and watch the minister do the ministry. This is definitively not God's plan for the church. Every one of us has been given a spiritual gift or gifts to be used, as it says in 1 Corinthians 12, for the common good, for the we, for the community. And so if you're missing community, apart from the external circumstances that would warrant that, maybe one of the other reasons is because you haven't been using your gift. Because when you step in and serve as God has called you to serve, whether it's within the church or outside the church or some combination of the two, you will have a sense of being part of the we that is extremely welcoming. And the best way to find out your gift, there's a number of things you can do. You can do spiritual gifts inventories. You can speak to other godly people who actually have the courage to tell you the truth. But the best way is to just start. And it can be a bit of trial and error. error, And you have to be willing, and some of us aren't, you have to be willing to hear from other godly gifted people, God loves you, but this particular area is not really your best serve. We really believe your best serve would be over here. Some people are not willing to hear that. Another thing that God does is God uses you when you serve. Uh, And and Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of that. So in chapter 12, again, he says in verse 12, the body is a unit. Though it is made up of many parts and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. And then in verse 21, he says, and he illustrates this in the previous verses, but in verse 21, he says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. And then in verse 26, jumping down, he says this, if one part suffers, this is part of this idea of community, every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, every part rejoices with each other. We need each other. We need community. You'll often hear Brian and Aaron and others saying, we're not meant to do the Christian life alone. And this passage clearly illustrates this. We need each other, and when one person hurts, we're there for them, and, and, and we're, we're one body together. So, for example, I've never heard a person, you know, just say something like this. They don't go, you know, I've had a screamer of a headache all day, but my back feels really good. Because the body is a unit. And this is the way it's supposed to function. If the foot is not working and you can't get around, you might have incredibly good hearing, but your ears aren't going anywhere because we need each other and we're meant to serve together. And so Paul is saying what part, if you read that passage in detail, he's saying what part of the body are you? If you're the mouth Some people have called me a mouthpiece once or twice. You should talk. Because God is giving you that spiritual gift. If you're the ears, 
Wow, you're important. You need to listen well. And there's precious little of that going on in the world right now, is there? You need to listen well. If you're the spine, we desperately need you because you are a person of great courage. And we need people of courage, people who help hold things together. If you're the heart, the image might be of of you pushing out nourishment to all the extremities and all the different parts of the body. Or if you're the hands or the feet, you have a gift or gifts if you are part of the family. The Spirit gives to each one, it says in verse 1, the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for the we, for community. I will tell you what you are not if you are a follower of Jesus. This one thing is for sure, this is what you are not if you're a follower of Jesus. What do we call um, an organism that lives off the body? That takes nourishment from the body, but doesn't provide or contribute anything to the body. We call it a parasite, right? Nobody wants to be a parasite. And it is absolutely not God's intention that any one of his followers would be a parasite. Every body part is important. So when we think about community, when prayers don't pray, when singers don't sing, when the technical people don't hook up the wires and click the mouse, when teachers don't teach, when greeters don't greet, the church falls flat on its face. A few years ago, I was privileged to be in Europe and do some studies for the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And one of the people I actually studied a bit when I was there by a guy named Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who was a famous theologian and pastor in Germany and died for very noble reasons during the war. And he wrote some really good books. And one of the books he wrote was a book called Life Together. And in speaking about community, Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote this, Thus, it is a good idea that all members receive a definitive task to perform for the community, so that they may know in times of doubt that they too are not useless and incapable of doing anything. Every Christian community must know that not only do the weak need the strong, but also that the strong cannot exist without the weak. The elimination of the weak is the death of the community. Wherever you are on that scale from weak to strong, you are necessary for the body. You are necessary for community. The strong cannot stand on their own. Without the weak, Diedrich is saying, they will crash, the strong will crash if the weak aren't there pitching in. This is how we build community. Paul also says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact that God will reward your serving. It says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Now, you've, you've probably never, ever done this in your life, but I think I've done this a few times. You know, I do an act of service, 
And I'm deathly afraid that not enough people or the right people in my mind have noticed it. So I feel like I need to point this out. You know, like, I emptied the dishwasher three weeks ago and nothing got said. Paul's saying, there's nothing you do that God misses. There's no service you undertake that he overlooks and doesn't prize. Listen to this next part. There's no love that you offer that doesn't get built into the person Jesus is forming you to be. Did you hear that? There's no love that you offer that doesn't get built into the person that Jesus is forming you to be. Nothing good is ever lost that way. And so whether people are applauding you or not, the harvest is coming. So find your spot, Paul is saying, and get on with it. If you follow Jesus, if you've confessed your sin, if you surrendered your life to him, to forgive you and to lead you, and you understand there's nothing you can do and nothing that, uh, that you can do to warrant or, or earn relationship with God. It's based only on Christ. So that grace has changed you. And the Spirit of Christ lives in you by His Spirit. We're told that the Spirit of God has given you a gift or gifts. You identified it. Treasuring it, and are you using it? There's a pile of places you could serve in the church or in the community to make a difference for eternity. And the we, when you when you get into this we factor in community, you, you will be richer. Probably not financially, but you'll be richer when you serve. Something. Uh, Aaron and Brian, Brian was the first one, and then Aaron has been, did in the first couple of weeks of this series. We're going to do it again today. It's just a, a small illustration. Um, I'm going to invite everybody to take their phones out and, and uh, that has it. I'm going to ask the tech people. I'm going to turn my light on, tech people to turn the lights down, and you can do it at home. It might not be quite as effective if you're watching online, but... Um, and just close those doors if we could, just to kind of darken it in here. And we'll close, turn the lights off in the balcony as well. That'd be great. Um, I'm going to invite you to turn your lights on here in just a second. And, and really what it is, the image is that, you know, there can be one light. But when we, we'll go ahead and throw those, if possible, we can throw those balcony lights off if we can. Um, that if you're willing to make this little challenge that I'm going to reference here, I'm going to just invite you to stand up where you are. If you need to, just grab the seat in front of you. Don't want anybody falling. And you can turn your lights on, and you'll see the effectiveness of us putting our lights on together and then making this commitment. Just go ahead and stand, turn your light on, and just say, I will commit to finding my gift. If I haven't already, and I will... Under Jesus, and this is a cool image, I will under Jesus in the power of the Spirit, I'll recognize my role as a priest who, who declares spiritual praises to God, it says in that first 
Peter chapter two passage, and who serves based on the giftedness God's put in my life. I will see my role as a priest as a vital part of the body of Christ. And I will continue serving if I've been serving already, or if I haven't, if I've been sitting on my hands, I'll try to discover my gift and I will serve contributing to the we, not focusing on me. And I will find community because I serve and help feed the body. And I will do this in Jesus' name and for his glory.